Well, uh, I too want to welcome you this morning to Alliance Bible Fellowship. Uh, we're thankful that you have chosen to come and uh, worship uh, with us uh, today. If I were to ask you, what is the, the most famous sermon ever preached? Undoubtedly, some of you would say, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Google it, and you'll find that it is first on, on, on many websites. Many of you know that Edwards was a pastor in the 18th century and that God used him and a guy named George Whitfield to bring about the Great Awakening, a spiritual revival uh, in the American colonies. It's a great sermon. I've read it several times. In fact, I've listened to it, not by Edwards, but some guy preaching Edwards' sermon with a nice British accent. Uh, in fact, when I was in high school, we even studied it, the sermon, in an English class in a public high school. I mean, can you imagine the ACLU getting wind of that, you know, today? Well, in, in the sermon, Edwards makes these rather provocative, now famous, statements. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. Jesus loves me. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. And you are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him more infinitely, or you have, in, uh, you have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Wow. Now, those are fearsome words, rather troubling, awesome words. True words? I mean, who preaches, I mean, who preaches like that anymore? No one. I mean, it is, it's said that as Edwards preached this message, that people in the church began weeping and crying out for mercy before he even, before he even finished. Today in our entertain me, make me happy churches, most would, well, they'd walk out. I would suggest that Edwards' sermon, one of the most famous sermons ever preached, finds its truth in the most famous, or at least the most important sermon ever preached, one by, preached by Jesus himself. And we find a summary of his message in our text today. We began a study of the gospel according to Mark a few weeks ago in the prologue, that is in the first 13 verses, the first half of the chapter, Mark introduced to us the main character um, of the story, Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God. You see, I've suggested that before we can ever talk about what Jesus said or, or even what Jesus did, that we have to know first who Jesus is. And, and so we, we learned some rather incredible things that, for example, that He was the promised one to come. John the Baptist was His was his forerunner. And, and quoting Isaiah, John said, make ready the way of the Lord. And that was incredible because when we saw, looked at that in Isaiah, we saw that the word is actually Yahweh, make ready the way of God himself. And he applied that to Jesus, God. 
such that John said, this one coming, I'm, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. And in preparation for his coming, John called the people to repentance, to, to prepare the way of this one promise for centuries through the, through the Old Testament. And, and so one day, Jesus came. He came to be baptized by John, and, and as he came out of the water, the Spirit of God was seen descending uh, on him in fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. In Isaiah, the very Spirit of God would rest on him. And then a voice came from heaven, the, the, the voice of God, the Father himself, who said, you are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. There could be no doubting that Jesus was God's own son. In fact, more than that, God himself revealed in the flesh. This, you see, is a foundational truth of Christianity, that, that Jesus was more than just a, a prophet or, or a good teacher who came along and said some really cool things. He was, he was the very son of God. Last week, we saw that he was compelled to go into the wilderness uh, where he was tempted by Satan because, you see, Mark wanted us to understand something, that as Jesus was about to enter his public ministry, he would be opposed by Satan himself because Satan knew who he was and, and what he came to do. This would be a, a cosmic battle because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy sin and, and death, and I want I want you to catch that. Jesus came to deal with sin, with our rebellion against our Creator. And, and because we have rebelled, in fact, every one of us have rebelled, God's wrath is rightly leveled against us, just, well, just like Edward said. In the book of Romans, Paul states his theme in, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We know this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, that is in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. I mean, this is incredibly good news. You see, through the gospel, we can, we can be saved. And, but before we can talk about the good news, we, there has to be bad news. You see, we, we do have to be saved, but the question is, saved from what? Why do we have to be saved? Paul went on to tell us in the next verse. It's not a very happy verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You see, Edwards got it. Edwards got it right. God is angry with sinners. What is, this, what is this truth that we suppress, that there, that there is a God in heaven who, who, who created all that we see, against whom we have rebelled, and, and as a result, to whom we will give an account? Paul spends the next couple of chapters proving that everybody has sinned, everybody has sinned, there are no exceptions, and as such, he gets to the end of the argument and, and says, every mouth is soft, the entire world, world is guilty. The entire world is accountable to God. You, you are accountable to God. It doesn't take much to, to convince people today that they're sinners, that they've done something wrong or they've done several things dreadfully 
wrong. The challenge is, is this, I mean, does it really matter? I mean, I'm not really that bad, right? I mean, I can always find someone who's worse than me, and, and God's not really that mad, is he? I mean, I don't really deserve it eternal punishment. Besides, God wouldn't do that, would He? I mean, God is a God of love, not a holy God of wrath, right? I watched a video on YouTube this week where it was one of those man-on-the-street interviews where this guy went up and just asked people, do you believe that God is a God of 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 wrath, of, of, of righteous anger, and I don't know if they edited the, the interviews or not, but, but, but most of the people said, no, God's not a God of wrath. He's a God of love. Jesus loves me. And so we see the gospel as the good news that God loves me and wants to make my life better. He wants to be my friend and give me some really good stuff, like a cosmic vending machine. We can go to Him in prayer, and He'll give me a good marriage and agreeable kids and a good job and money in the bank and a car that starts and a a nice house and a happy life. And you can go into most churches today, and they'll give you 27 steps to how to make your spouse happy. That's what God wants for you, see? This sinner's in the hands of an angry God is, it's outdated. We need, to, we need to update the picture. We need to give God a, a makeover. I mean, come on, we need to make him more palatable, more acceptable, more likable, uh, if he even really exists. You see, that's another thing that we can do. Okay, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm not really sure there's a God anyway. You see, if I can convince myself that there is no God, I can... Live however I want. Having seen who Jesus is, we arrived this morning at what Jesus said. He's going to say a lot of things through this book, but after He is introduced to us as the Son of God, the very first thing that He says is in our text today. Look at it with me. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 say this. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. This is the message of the Bible. This is the message of Christianity, that God has fulfilled in time His promises through His Son That God's kingdom is here, that God's kingdom has been brought near by the king, and our response should be twofold, namely repentance and faith. And those words are actually commands. Since it is true that the time is fulfilled, and since the king has brought the kingdom near, Jesus commands you to repent and believe. We're going to just look at these two verses today, and my, my purpose is really quite simple. I want to tell you at the outset, since Jesus came in the flesh to reveal God to us, and since we have a great need because of our rebellion in sin, I am going to call you to repent and believe. Now, now, now I know that this is a church, and, and I suspect that probably a lot of you in here at one point or another have repented and, and believed, and, and I'm very thankful for that. But I also recognize in a church this size that there are people here that you just come because, well, 
that's what we do on Sunday mornings in the Bible Belt South, or you come with your parents, or come because your parents expect you to come, and and I suspect that there are people here who have never truly repented and believed the gospel. And so if you know Jesus, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray that God will do what only he can do, that he will open dead hearts to repent and believe the gospel. Look at, look at verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, stop there. John, of course, was John the Baptist. He'd been doing his ministry in, in the south, in, in, in Judea. Uh, Mark doesn't tell us why he was taken uh, into custody, at least not until um, chapter um, 6. There we will see that John was preaching against um, Herod Antipas, uh, specifically for taking his brother Philip's wife. Herodias was her name. Did you, did you catch what I just said? And John was preaching against sin. You can't take another man's wife, especially your sister-in-law, to be your wife. That's called sin. And I know that we are in, in process in this country of redefining sin and, and saying that all kinds of sexual sin are not sin, but I want you to understand it's still sin. Herod Antipas didn't like it. And so he had John arrested, which is interesting because, you see, people don't like it when you preach against sin, especially their sin. I mean, you can talk about other people's sin, just don't talk about mine. This, I want you to understand, is the offense of the gospel. Before there can be good news, that is who Jesus is and what he came to do, there must be bad news. Here's the bad news. We are sinners, all of us, every one of us in need of a Savior. Don't tell me I'm a sinner. I like myself. I like my life just the way that it is, thank you very much. And I like my sin. I choose my sin over Jesus. This is the problem you see with humanity. We've always done that. And so then sometimes, because people don't like to be called sinners... We Christians, wanting to make Jesus more attractive, we, 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 we do the God makeover thing. We take out the offense of the gospel. We remove the bad news. God, Jesus loves you and wants to be your friend. And, and, and that is true. But there's something that stands in the way of your friendship, of your being reconciled to God, namely your sin. Herod didn't like it. Um, and he had the power to arrest John. You don't have that power. Right? You, you can't arrest me uh, this morning. Most of you can't anyway. And, 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 and so you decide to do something else. You just don't listen. You, you, don't, you don't agree. You, you don't think that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. Hold, hold on to that thought. So after John was taken into custody, the word for taken into custody is a very specific and very special word that Mark uses throughout um, his gospel. The word literally means to be betrayed or to be handed over. In fact, it's often translated handed o over. For example, Jesus, he told his disciples a couple of times that they were going to go to Jerusalem where he would be handed over to the religious uh, leaders. In fact, that word appears eight times in chapters 14 and 15, speaking of Jesus being handed over to the religious authorities, who then handed him over to, to the governing authorities, and most notably when Jesus handed, or excuse me, when Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. 
You should also know this. Jesus uses that specific word when talking to his, to his disciples. You too, like me, will be handed over to the authorities because of your faith. You see, people will not like it when you tell them they're sinners. And then we remember that Mark is writing to Roman Christians who were suffering for their faith under the Neronian persecutions. And Mark is actually writing, be encouraged, Christ was handed over because people won't like it when they hear the bad news of the gospel. And John's taken into custody and Jesus came. Jesus says it like this in, in, in Luke 16. It's very interesting. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. Meaning, you know, with John, the, the old covenant came to an end. And with Jesus, the new covenant begins. You say old covenant, what's that? The old covenant was that law, the, the, the law, the mosaic law that God gave with all of those lists of rules, all those laws. Don't do this and, and do this. And, and here's what we found out. We couldn't keep the law. That's why it was given. Don't do this. We did it. Do this and we didn't. And this is the problem because we're sinners. And we needed a new covenant and there was nothing that we could do about our inability to keep the law. And so Jesus came as a remedy for our sin. He came into Galilee. We remember that Jesus was actually from Galilee, from a little town called Nazareth up there in the north. But, but after he came to be baptized by John, he stayed down there in the south in Judea for a while. Only the, Jospel, uh, the gospel of, of John records that for us. For example, we know in, in John's gospel, chapter 3, that he met with Nicodemus at night, and then he began making his way up north uh, to, to Galilee, stopped in Samaria to see that woman um, at the well. And then Mark skips all of that and, and writes about his ministry in Galilee. You see, this is where most of Jesus' ministry took place, some three years of his ministry. Yes, he made some trips to Jerusalem, but he spent most of his time up north. It isn't until Mark chapter 8 that Jesus heads to Jerusalem for the last time. So Jesus goes to Galilee and preaches the, the gospel of God. Now, you, you may know that the word gospel means good news, and th it does. And this is one of the few times that it's called the gospel of God. Paul calls it the gospel of God a few times. Peter does once. But this is the only time that it's called the gospel of God in the, in, in, in the four gospels. Usually, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, here it means that the good news the good news of God, the good news from God, made known to us in Jesus Christ. And, and what was that gospel? What was that good news? Well, well it starts with this teaching and, and, and life of Jesus. All four gospel narratives end it with the story of his death, burial, and resurrection. I want you to understand that means that Jesus not only preaches the good news, he is the good news. Mark, or, or, or rather Jesus, tells us specifically what he preached in the next verse with two statements followed by two commands. That's all we're going to look at this morning. Look at them with me. The first statement is the time is fulfilled. What time? It's the time. It's the apex of history. It's the decisive moment for the fulfillment of those promises made throughout the, the Old Testament. It is that to which everything pointed to and everything that, that now points back to. It is the all-important 
time. You see, after we rebelled against God, he promised that a time would come when the seed of the woman would, would crush the head of the serpent. And you go, wait, what, what, what does that mean? Well, you remember the story in the Garden of Eden, way back at the beginning of Genesis, when, when Satan tempted Eve and she ate the fruit and then she gave it to her Adam, who then also ate. And you need to know that his act of rebellion plunged humanity, every single one of us, into sin. God cursed humanity because of that, but in the midst of that cursing, he promised that there would come a man, a seed of the woman, born of woman, who would crush Satan's head, that he would come to destroy the works of the devil, namely sin and death. Jesus, you see, was born of a woman only. God in the flesh, he came to fulfill the promise and and many, many others. As I understand it, there are some 300 prophecies in the Old Testament speaking of the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A statistical impossibility, well, unless it's a fulfillment of prophecy. We remember, for example, when God appeared to Abraham, and he said to Abraham, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the world... Everybody, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And Jesus came, a seed of Abraham, of the nation of Israel, to bless the rest of the world. You see, the time had been fulfilled. He had come to to do what what had been promised throughout the Old Testament. Paul said it this way in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that law that you and I can do nothing about. He, however, kept perfectly so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. The time had come for the fulfillment of the promises. Jesus had come. And in his coming, he brought the kingdom of God. It it was at hand. It It was here. The kingdom of God refers not so much to an area. It speaks to God's right to rule his creation. You see, while we rebelled, Jesus, through his coming and through his work, brought the kingdom of God, his right to rule, his rebellious creation, he brought it near. And and we are actually able to enter the kingdom, to become willing subjects of the king. And and I am telling you this morning that the kingdom is is near, that you can enter the kingdom of God and become willing subjects. And you look around and you say, this planet doesn't look very much like God is in charge. I want you to understand that it is here, but it's not yet here in its fullness. There's coming a time when it will be here in its fullness and every knee will bow. And every tongue confess. So how how do we enter the kingdom? How do we become willing subjects? Through obeying these two commands that Jesus gives in this very first, very short, very important sermon. First, we repent. We repent. The word means to change your mind, to turn away from your sin, and to turn away from your rebellion. Again, this is the challenging part of the gospel. This is the challenging part of the good news. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ requires that you confess and that you repent. To confess means to agree that you are guilty of what you have been charged of. You're guilty. You are guilty sinners. And and this is the rock of offense of the gospel. 
Repentance is coming to the end of yourselves. It is coming to the realization that you are indeed rebellious. It is coming then to abhor your own sin. But it, is, but it is much more than just feeling sorry about your sin. Oh, man, I messed up. I really, really feel really, really sorry about it. It includes that. But Paul said that there is a worldly sorrow that leads to death, and there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Again, being sorry for your sin is not enough. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which is realizing your sin is rebellion feeling sorrow over your sin, and which leads to a change of mind, a change of direction, a change of purpose. It is saying, I don't want to be a rebellious sinner anymore. Here's the problem. There is nothing that you can do to erase your sin. No matter how hard you try, there is nothing you can do to pardon your sin. There is nothing that you can do to make up for your sin. Listen to me. There is nothing that you can do to stop being a sinner. And even if you could, you still had that problem of all those sins you've already committed. You are by nature. Listen to me very carefully. You are by nature a sinner. And as such, it is true. God's wrath is rightly leveled against you. And the only answer is to repent and to turn from your sin, but that's not all. You turn in faith to Christ. That's the second command. You believe in the gospel, the good news that Jesus is who he said he was and that he accomplished what he came to do, to die on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. You see, while it is true that everyone is a sinner such that God's wrath is rightly revealed from heaven, it is also true that God's righteousness has also been revealed from heaven. After Paul spent three chapters proving that everyone is a sinner, everyone in this room is a sinner, causing God's wrath to be rightly revealed against us, he goes on in Romans 3 to say, but now, thank God for but now. But now apart from the law, remember that law that you could not keep? That law of right and wrong that we broke, that made us lawbreakers, made us Sinners, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been revealed, has been made known. Having been witnessed by the law and the prophets, foreseen by the, by the law and the prophets, in other words, prophesied throughout the Old Testament, that, that when the fullness of time came, the Son would come. He goes on, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Believe what? Believe the gospel. Believe the good news that Jesus sent his own son to make a way for your sins and your rebellion to be forgiven, for you to be made right or to be made just before God. You can actually stand clean before him, declared Declared righteous, Paul goes on. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That is, you fall short of God's beauty and his majesty and his, his, his glorious perfections and the standard of his, uh, uh, the standard of perfection for, for you. You've not been able to do that because we've all sinned repeatedly. 
But by faith in Jesus, we can be declared right. We can be declared, be declared just. And he goes on, having been justified, declared righteous as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. You, listen to me. You can actually be redeemed. That word means to be. We're slaves to sin. We're in the slave market of sin. But you can actually be bought out of, the, of slavery to sin and be owned by Christ himself through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, brought out of slavery to sin through his work on the cross. Paul goes on. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, Jesus, God displayed publicly as a propitiation. That's a big word. A propitiation in his blood through faith. Propitiation, big theological term, simply means Edwards got it right. God's wrath was rightly directed at you, but when Jesus died, he propitiated. He turned God's wrath away from you by shedding his own blood. He bore your sins in his body on the cross so that all who believe in him by faith can be saved. Say, saved from what? Saved from sin and its corresponding righteous judgment. And bearing your sins and dying on the cross, he was buried for three days and then he came back to life. We call it the resurrection. We sang about it this morning. And because he has been raised from the dead, we too, as believers, will one day be raised to be with God forever. This is the gospel. This is, you see, the good news that Jesus came to bring. So in his first sermon, he says to you, he says to you, the time is fulfilled. It's time. The kingdom of God is right here. It is present. It is ready for you to enter. All you have to do is repent. That is, you need to turn from your sin and your rebellion and, and, and believe the gospel. And, and, and inherent in that word believe is this idea of trust. Trust that Jesus accomplished what you never could. You could live a million lifetimes and you could never do it. But by his perfect life and death and resurrection for you, if you confess him as Lord, the, the, the master of, of your life, and no, no longer are you the master, rebelliously choosing sin, you confess him as Lord, you can be saved. Let's stand for prayer. I'm, I'm going to ask everybody stand. Just bow your heads, uh, right, uh, right where you are, um, and I want you to understand that this is the gospel. This is what Christianity is all about. It is the truth that Jesus came to live and die for. That we were rebellious sinners, and that He 
and that he loved us uh, anyway. And he came to make a way for us to be reconciled, redeemed, brought back into right relationship with God. Are you not, are you not tired of your sin? Are you not tired of, of trying to be good and be right and find that you fail at every turn? I want you to understand that Christ made a way for you to be made right. It's called the gospel. And I'm simply going to ask you to respond today. Father, um, we come to this time at the end of our service and my very simple prayer is, is for people to believe, for you to open dead, cold, lifeless, sinful hearts like you did Lydia so that people can respond in faith and repentance uh, to the gospel. Would you do what only you can do? Breathe life into death. We pray in Jesus' name.